0: Hello, thanks for pressing play and welcome to the next frontline the future of manufacturing, operational excellence, Industry 4.0, and the people building it. This is your host, Eric Dunn. Today, it is my pleasure to present my conversation with Elizabeth Rolinski. Elizabeth is a former Vice President of Global Operations and Manufacturing Engineering at Clarios, which is formerly Johnson Controls Power Solutions. In that role, she led multiple operations and engineering functions, driving operational excellence across the 55 facilities of Clarios. Elizabeth has 37 years of experience in the automotive industry, spanning across multiple disciplines, including operations, quality, product engineering, purchasing and manufacturing engineering. One of her career highlights was launching and managing the first lithium-ion automotive battery manufacturing plant in the US, which was visited by President Obama in 2011. Elizabeth is now a partner in Leading by Design, a consulting firm where she works side by side with leaders and teams to map out and execute upon plans aimed at closing top operational and organizational gaps. Her edge is very clear in our conversation, an immense passion for developing and inspiring others to achieve great results. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Rolinski. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: First question, how do you get into the wonderful world of manufacturing?
1: For me I, it was a long time ago even when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to sign up and go to a, a women in engineering camp like a week-long camp up at, at Michigan Tech an engineering school And you know I, there was manufacturing topics there as well as other engineering topics but I rather liked it. Uh, later that same year I uh, interviewed with General Motors and that was my first time in a big manufacturing plant. Um, but the first time I went through uh, the Osmobile plant in Lansing, I was just shocked, you know, at how big it was. And they were very, very vertically integrated back then. You know, they, they did a a bulk of everything on the vehicle. Uh, but to see everything synchronized and come together and the, the people and the equipment working together, um, I... I loved it, and so that was, you know, I took that job and I went to Kettering and on into manufacturing from there. Got my degree in industrial engineering and manufacturing engineering.
0: Now, I imagine that, you know, throughout these years and you had a fantastic career in manufacturing, you've seen manufacturing in general evolve and you've seen trends and you've seen fads. I'm really curious about this last year. You know, how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed things for manufacturing? What has accelerated? Yeah. And what do you think? What do you think is temporary versus what has changed permanently?
1: I think an eye-opener for many companies and uh, you know parts of companies even is how uh, if they had a stable and lean environment already, if it was a pretty uh, solid rollout of lean. Um, as well as aspects of manufacturing 4.0 or smart factory, they saw that, you know, they weren't taken off guard, Um, you know, and, and things weren't flipped upside down for them as much during COVID. And I think that turned a lot of people into believers. And I see companies where it's like one plant might've been further along and another not, and they could see that contrast. So now, you know, it's kind of building, I think more believers and building synergy there. So I, I think some of those are going to be lasting because it, it raises these discussions and, Uh, People can see it. Right. I mean, leaders can see that. And I think uh, become believers out of it.
0: Absolutely. And, and we've been with this situation now for almost a year. So I imagine that once we have this sort of pressure for a year, things tend to become much more permanent. And talking about, um, talking about the things that have changed during the pandemic, new attention has been brought to the frontline workers. And I love that they're being called like essential workers. How do you see the frontline workers of today compared to 15 years ago, even 25 years ago what is changing in the way of managing them engaging them empowering them
1: yeah i think things have changed uh in their world i think how we manage and empower them um i'll get into that part in a minute because i don't know that that has changed they've got a lot of the same motivators but for them their world has changed you know it's less hard physical labor and more interface with the digital world whether it's um, the human interface with the machine the actual hmi and and you know mobility using their mobile phones and saying are my parts on the way over here and you know that type of thing um, has changed tremendously and if the leaders uh, help and let the frontline leaders (laughs) embrace this and really understand why behind it and I see a lot of excitement about it I see the frontline workers enjoying this new world they're in so that's been a really cool thing to see over the last decade Uh, but again your question on you know how do you empower and, and motivate them I think You know even a decade ago and two decades ago people were empowered by having ownership by you know not being blamed uh for things that go wrong but part of a solution for things go wrong but what is cool is that i think more and more leaders are recognizing the style of leadership that is needed to motivate them even even if the motivators aren't different leaders recognizing that they need clear and open channels of communication is more important than ever because things are changing so fast and they need to be able to share the mission in a concise way and uh, they need to be able to really listen i mean kind of the whole idea of a gemba walk or or gemba talk or you know whatever is is being empathetic listening and learning from those frontline leaders and then together they collaborate and, and they build this kind of trust that excites the entire team I'm not saying that has changed like we've arrived and we weren't there 10 years ago, but I see more and more excitement and discussion around that type of leadership and the involvement um, and benefit that the the frontline can can bring by being involved. So that's exciting.
0: What I hear from what you're saying is that not many things have changed on the side of management, but they definitely should change.
1: Well, some things have. I, I think it's, it's kind of, you got the full spectrum of it. Some are doing fantastic. What I think has not changed is the the human the front the frontline worker the production worker they always wanted to be involved they were always motivated by being trusted and having ownership you know what i mean yeah they were 10 years ago and they are today now i think we we have more and more leaders recognizing that and really tapping into the ability to motivate them
0: right I want to go back in time a little bit because right now you're doing consulting, but you've been most recently vice president of global operations and manufacturing at Johnson Controls and Clarios, which is also, I understand, a Johnson Controls company. And you've been in multiple leadership roles, but you started as a plant manager. Yeah. And I always like to go back into the basics of what is the primary role of a plant manager? And I think the test of fire would be, how do you explain the role of being a plant manager to a five-year-old kid?
1: Yeah, I love that question because I was a plant manager with five-year-old kids. So (laughs) I did have to explain it. And I think if I didn't take the time to explain it, they would have thought it was a place where you go with uh, donuts in the lunchroom that (laughs)
0: You are always (laughs) there and free
1: for the taking. Um, But, you know, they came in to work with me quite often on Saturdays, and they usually came in to work with me on Wednesday evenings as well, because I uh, was pretty consistent about doing a second shift evening update for the production group. And so they got a chance to hear what I talked about there and, you know, going to and from talking about what what is this job and what is this building we go into? What are all these people doing? And I always just described it a little bit like the, you know, like their kindergarten class that has a team and we're a team and we're on a mission. And for us, you know, because I was in automotive um, interior parts at the time, our our goal is our mission is to work together on getting these seats or these visors or whatever into the car on time and looking great. So they get to families on time and, you know, you can really equate that to whatever. I mean, if they're making making valentines for their class and they have to have 20 of them done, they can't, you know, forget a kid. Uh, They can't uh, do it on February 15th. It has to be by the 14th. But we just continually have these, you know, kinds of great projects going on. I think I I probably described my role uh, akin to a teacher to them because they could understand that. And in a lot of ways, I'm there to help the team if they need something, right? Help pave the way for them to be successful just as their teacher does. I also happened to be their their T-ball coach. So I do kind of remember saying, part of it's being a cheerleader. Part of it's rallying the team around a mission and telling them they're doing a great job and keep going, just like we do in t-ball. <laughs> so, 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 there really are a lot of analogies and, um, and there really are a lot of donuts usually <laughs> in <most> plants.
0: <laughs> no, nothing works uh, better either in the classroom or in the plant as donuts.
1: Exactly.
0: <laughs> um, throughout your your um, experience, I mean, the automotive industry in particular most other industries as well but it, it's very cyclical where you have ups and downs and and so on and imagine you have many plants where you have to had uh to face a situation and not only a plant but where you had to do a situation where you had a performance turnaround and in these situations what is a good practice to manage change and, mm-hmm. and especially by engaging or or uh, you know engaging the frontline workers in such change
1: yeah it, it, I have been a part of a lot of turnarounds and, um, you know, some in this country and some in plants outside the country, and sometimes it was part of a plant or an entire plant. And one common theme I saw is by the time we were calling it a turnaround and a, quote, turnaround team would get involved, you come in and see a team that had been feeling pretty beat up, you know, feeling pretty tired, <laughs> you know, from the overtime and from not winning as a team and, and maybe even feeling the blame of it and maybe even leadership styles that are are directly placing the blame on them and you know that's not an easy position to get out of once that happens not to mention that you get a spiral of things gone wrong right equipment not being maintained and more and more quality problems and they have to be methodically fixed to dig out of the hole Uh, so the things i found successful were really uh coming in and, and prioritizing like we're not gonna fix everything at once what's our top issues and listening to those frontline leaders like what are your biggest Herbies, what are really causing you problems? What do you see as far as quality, and what are the biggest ones that you would like us to see fixed first? Um, And often, what they're going to say is going to match the data because they're there and and they know. Um, And then the other thing of, you know, I I have seen in turnarounds, people coming in and and, um, helpers, you know, kind of that old uh, oxymoron of I'm here from corporate and I'm here to help, (laughs) and nobody (laughs) really, nobody really wanted them there. Sometimes it's because they come in and they're trying to do everything at once or very complex um, automation and that type of thing is get back to the basics. You know, there are some core fundamental basics of standardized work and stabilization team huddles around what has to happen day by day or hour by hour if it's in that type of a turnaround. So really getting back to some of the core basics. And, and one of them I think is important is you may have to and almost every time I advocated invest more maybe more people than you might need two years from now but you have to dig out of a hole we've got to maybe do a lot of equipment rebuilds we've got to catch up on maintenance that wasn't done we've got to solve quality problems might need to add a couple of stations just to get things you know a good flow going and and stop the chaos And eventually just through attrition or growth or whatever you can get it right-sized again but you've got to spend to save in that case and then i I think the the biggest thing probably is that uh, kind of back to the leadership discussion we had of celebrate the wins along the way make it make it fun and exciting for that frontline team not more um of that feeling of getting beat up but more of we can we can do this and we're going to celebrate the wins
0: what would be something interesting that you've seen that you think will make a big impact on how manufacturing will look like in 10 years?
1: There are a lot of them, and I think that it's a little different, you know, if you're heavy processing or your light assembly, uh, it, it might be different depending on the the industry and the gap that you're trying to, to close. Uh, but what popped into my head was on the assembly side, is, and that interface with the, the frontline workers, is uh, some of the ways of going paperless with instructions. Um, and, and we did this in one of our plants in in Spain because of the high vacations that they have in Europe that during the summer months, there's always people filling in where they they don't know that job as well. And, and by going paperless then and picking up a, a manufacturing 4.0-ish technology would be, you know, a screen where you can actually see each step and sensors saying, okay, you picked up this one, you placed this one, check. You know, it saw you, it sensed you, and then it's showing the next step. And you can see really quickly, you know, an experienced worker doesn't need to look up at it all the time. An inexperienced worker can make a quality part and make it pretty quickly feeling confident like they couldn't years ago when all this stuff was in a binder on a file cabinet off to the side. (laughs) They weren't given time to go look at it. Good luck finding that. Yeah, so I love that one because it really does change the ability to be flexible with with people and, and, and really help them, enable them to do um, a great quality job, uh, but that's just one, there, you know, closed manufacturing, just, you know, the full connectivity of the, uh, you know, all the way through the value stream. Yeah, there's so many exciting things. It's hard to narrow it down.
0: <laughs> and on this technology subject, is there anything, any particular technology that you were skeptical about, but that has proven to be, you know, working well within your industry? Yeah.
1: One, I was skepti- skeptical about Uh, with regard to do we have a use for it at first, and then I became a big believer and I still push it a lot today, is cobots. And I think my skepticism at first was I was used to things being caged and that a robot really can pinch you and hurt you and you know, this not not being caged really didn't it didn't sit well with me at first until I did get to interact and we had Universal Cobot come in for a demo and You know, I got to program it because the way it's programming is so much simpler. You don't have to know a whole lot of code, um, and I know none, and was able to do some of it. So how reconfigurable it is, but also how it interfaces with people. And you know, based off current, and it touches something, it knows to to stop. And uh, so after that, after seeing it and seeing some applications of it, I I probably flipped from being like, yeah, we may not have a spot for that one to. Where can we use
0: this? This is great. You know, I I also recently saw some cobots that have a little screen on front of them, which shows like a pair of eyes that look toward the place where the the cobot is going to be moving next. So it it helps the human better anticipate their movements. It's it's amazing. Um, (laughs) That is clever. But now cobots might be seen as a complex or high investment technology. Have you seen any simple technologies that you could say that could be easily adopted, could have a good impact and relatively low implementation effort.
1: Yeah, it, surprisingly, I mean, this is going to sound capital intensive when I say it, but even 3D, 3D printers, the cost has come down and the capability has come down that it is realistic for plants to buy them. And in the application, I've seen it successful in manufacturing because we built, You know, I mean, batteries are heavy and, you know, you're not and mass production is a high speed thing Uh, additive or 3D printing didn't necessarily fit in right away there, but it did on our equipment and because it's so capital intensive, large equipment, you know, downtime is very expensive. Uh, so we began in one of our plants in North Carolina, um, after we bought one to say, okay, does that help us with our uptime? You know, it might be something new we're trying with a piece of equipment or with a conveyance system and you need a particular part. Um, and we could actually be doing that right on site and cutting down weeks of lead time and our equipment comes from all over the world. So literally, you know, weeks of lead time. That one surprised me too, because it sounds like an expensive investment, but it pays off really quickly if you, you can't afford downtime and if you can get a, a team that knows how to use it well.
0: I'm going to steer away a little bit from the subject of technology, and I'm really curious about your current job. You're a partner at a firm called Leading by Design, where you state that you work with one executive at a time to, yeah. to develop leadership. I'm, I'm really curious about that term of one executive at a time. How did that come to be?
1: yeah that came to be because the idea is we each as leaders have our own design we have our own wiring and our own talents and and we have our own things that we need to grow in to become an awesome leader and certainly there are things that always define an awesome leader right somebody who can build trust and um, you know cast a clear vision and so on but the design to get there is about that individual and the program is a year long program. So, you know, they're they're with their cohort of nine people every month, you know, all day, working through some of these concepts and in teams working through the concepts, but they are with a coach in between for two hours. So they have a, a leadership coach that they're meeting one-on-one with, going over those same topics and exploring that, that leader, them as an individual of where do they need to grow? What do they need to try? They try things in the work environment. Um, you know, maybe it's seeking first to understand, maybe it's, you know, they've had a tough time really giving good, honest feedback in a constructive way, whatever it may be, the coach is there in a safe environment to be working with them and the coach is with them all, all year through the program. And then even after that, they're part of an alumni alumni group with continued learning. So, you know, there's classes and there's teamwork, but it's very much about the individual. And uh, a lot of the time is geared towards individual plans and work as a leader.
0: Elizabeth, I'd like to you know, wrap up our conversation, which has been very, very interesting, very insightful, by saying that I really admire what you've done in your professional trajectory. What needs to be done so more women can successfully participate in leadership roles in the manufacturing industry?
1: Yeah, there's probably several parts to that, but one definitely is exposing more women to the world of manufacturing, because it is a wonderful career. And there's still biases out there, be it in engineering or manufacturing roles in general, that, you know, it's a dirty place. You don't want to work there or, you know, that's that's men's work doing uh, engineering. Because still, like mechanical engineering, only, you know, like 13 percent are women in the U.S. So I think that raising awareness, helping break down some of the biases um creating role models and there's so many great programs that do this all the way into middle schools and high school like i had started out with that camp those kinds of things um internships uh and then in the workplace because there still are fewer women in the leadership roles i think open honest discussion about inclusion and belonging so that women feel like they belong there and can see themselves there for the duration of their career and they they feel the growth I I, I know we will get there. It's just that we still have a long ways to go.
0: Definitely, and we all have our part to play on that. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time, and I really do look forward to a follow-up conversation.
1: Thank you very much, I've enjoyed it.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Rever, the frontline excellence platform. Rever connects the people who identify problems with the people who can solve them within your organization. Rever is an easy to use app that empowers your frontline employees to collaborate, identifying and solving problems, and improving existing processes at the source. Visit ReverScore.com to learn how plant managers in companies like Toyota, GlaxoSmithKline, Mitsubishi, Mars, and Grupo Bimbo have saved millions of dollars by connecting their frontline employees and improving productivity with Rever. Visit ReverScore.com.